Well, we are back in the book of Galatians, and so if you have a copy of God's Word, you can open up uh, there. We'll start back in chapter 2. We are on the power of an evil spell, part 2 of that message. And last week, as we left, the uh, challenges were two. Uh, one is to um, not underestimate your influence. That uh, We talked about Peter and how he had influence, and God put him in circles of influence. Uh, and likewise, God's put all of us uh, in circles of influence. There are people in our lives who are relying on our influence for their direction. And so the encouragement was reflect on that. <clears throat> who is it in your sphere who is relying on your influence for their direction? And how can you more faithfully or more truly point people to Christ uh, as you are making your choices in your life that will allow them as well to set that direction uh, for how they're heading? So don't underestimate your influence and use that influence to lead others. And secondly, fear of people is a dangerous trap. So Proverbs 29 tells us that. And we saw what that looked like in the life of a, of a leader, Peter, when he allowed that group of high-powered, highly articulate, great religious rule-keeping group, we called them the varsity team, that group was able to intimidate Peter. And so his influence around those that he led, that changed. He, how he used his leadership changed, and he allowed that varsity team, as we've called them, to call the shots. And so he uh, knuckled under to them. And Paul tells us in Galatians, we read that last week, that Peter was afraid. He was afraid of their criticism, the criticism that came from that high-powered group of people. And that led to bad things for the believers there, for the churches in Galatia, uh, and Paul tells us what had to be done in order to correct that problem. But the encouragement last week was, how can we become more trusting in the Lord and less trusting in other people when it comes to shepherding or managing our well-being? My sense of being okay. When my sense of being okay is in your hands, as opposed to being in the hands of the Lord, uh, that changes how I relate to you. Um, when the Lord is responsible for me being okay, that allows me to trust in him and focus my energy there, as opposed to focusing on you and trying to manage you. Um, you're easier to manage than God. <laughs> and the Lord, excuse me, the Lord knows that and wants to invite us, could you just trust me and allow me to manage your life? So unfortunately, Peter had to learn that the hard way, and we'll pick up there this week in verse 14. So let's look there together. Chapter 2, starting in verse 14. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, and I just want to pause there for a minute, um, who is the they that weren't following the truth of the gospel message? Well, it was Peter, and it was Barnabas. <clears throat> Barnabas was Paul's companion. So Paul had already gone through Galatia, a region in uh, Turkey, and with him was Barnabas, and Barnabas and Paul had led all of these believers to the Lord um, in all of these different churches that Paul is now writing to. So Peter was off track, so was Barnabas, so were all of the Jewish Christians who were there in Antioch, and unfortunately the Gentiles who were there were also affected by this. So Peter is in front of all the others. That's all those others. And here's what Paul says to Peter. Since you, 
a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like these Gentiles. And right here from verses 15 to then 16, Paul shifts gears and he stops telling the Galatian churches about what brought him to the point of writing the letter. And now he starts in earnest in why he's writing the letter to these people. He continues in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. So in verse 16, he sets out a premise. He sets out an idea. The idea is people are made right with God by faith. And unlike Disney movies, where the sincerity of your faith validates the object of your faith, that is, it doesn't really matter what you believe in as long as you believe it sincerely, and you'll see that theme echoed throughout our culture, that truth as an objective reality is really less relevant than the sincerity of your belief in that truth, whatever that truth is for you. For the Apostle Paul, he, that's not where he's operating from. For, for Paul, you can be sincerely wrong, even though you have sincere faith. For him, the object of Jesus Christ is what changes the power and the impact uh, of your faith. So Paul says, we know that people are made right with God by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. And then he contrasts that not by obeying the law. So I think we can think about the law in, in two different ways. We can think about it specifically. That is, Paul had a technical meaning in mind when he talked about the law. The law meant uh, the Old Testament law, the over 600 regulations that were in the Old Testament that guided feast days and uh, what you should eat and how you should dress and who you should uh, associate with. All of those different kinds of things uh, were all regulated, and that was the technical definition of the law. But then there's a more generic definition of the law, and it, he also means that as well, and that is simply uh, moral choice-making, um, religious rule-making, uh, doing, doing the, the right thing um, as defined by rules. So it's, it's not rule-keeping, whether the technical or the general version of those rules. It's not rule-keeping that makes people right with God. It's faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says, he personalizes that in the rest of verse 16. If you look there, he says, And we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. So then he personalizes it, and he includes himself with Peter and Barnabas and the Jewish Christians and the varsity team and all of his readers in Galatia. So he takes the principle and says, that's been true of us. This is how we got started together on our Christian journey. He continues in verse 17. Uh, or rather, just before verse 17, in the last sentence, therefore, no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Paul will continue to emphasize this point as we go through our text this morning. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. No one will be made right with God by doing good things. No one will be made right with God by avoiding bad things. That doing good things and avoiding bad things, coming up with rules to avoid doing bad things and make sure that you do good things, 
that whole scheme or way of thinking about spirituality will never make a person right with God, ever. The only way to be made right with God is to have faith in Jesus Christ. So verse 17, Paul continues, But suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ, and then we're found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Would that mean Christ has led us into sin? And Paul says, absolutely not. Rather, I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law that I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. So if you remember, Paul was not living a lifestyle that was uh, kind of the lifestyle of a barfly, right? He was, he was not debauched. He was a rule keeper. Um, he did all of the things that he knew to do, and he tried to do them the best that he knew how to do them. So he was living a clean, sober upstanding life. That's the life that Paul was living. And how does Paul think about that life that he was living? He said, I lived under condemnation. That's what verse 19 tells us. And so he died. He died to the moral, religious law, the rule keeping that he had to die to. Why? Because if he didn't die to that, he couldn't live for God. Because Christ lives in him. Look at verse 20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Who is his old self? It's that old moral rule-keeping self, the do's and the don'ts, the, the in and the out. All of that scheme that Paul says, that was my old life. Now, some of you who know Jesus have a different old life, right? Your old life looks a lot less clean than Paul's old life looked like. I mean, for you, your old life looked like living like a crazy person, right? All, all, totally off the rails, crazy. Some of you have an old life that looks like that. Paul was horrified by his old life, and his old life was all about rule-keeping, making sure this was this way and that was that way, and we just made sure we stayed away from people who were the wrong kind of people. That was Paul's old self. What does he say needs to happen to that old self? Needs to be crucified with Christ. He said that has happened. And it is a little bit hard for some of those varsity team members among us to imagine that it's actually the rule-keeping that is part of the cost Christ had to die to set us free from. That the rule-keeping is part of the cross. It's not part of the resurrected life of Jesus that the rule-keeping is part of the cross and not part of the resurrected life of Jesus. That's where the rule-keeping side of things falls. That's on the cross side, the pre-resurrected side of living life. Paul goes on in verse 20, So I, I live, and when I live in this earthly body, I live by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then in verse 21, he says a, a pretty radical statement. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there would be no need for Christ to die. What is Paul saying? He's saying that if we have any confidence in the sort of moral rights and wrongs, do's and don'ts, if, if that's what we have confidence in, if, if that somehow merits us to God, if somehow God can... Uh, look at us favorably because of how good we do at saying no to these things and saying yes to these things. 
then what we are doing is we're treating the grace of God as meaningless. That's what Paul says. So if you add rule-keeping as some strategy to make you more like Christ, you are treating the cross as meaningless. There is no room for your rule-keeping in your growth as a Christian person. Paul lays out the true gospel. That's the one, the true gospel that he brought to the churches when he was visiting their cities. And he contrasts here and throughout Galatians, contrasting the law with faith. The law with faith. Rules with faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. So faith means believing the promises of God. The promise that Jesus makes us right with God because of what he's done, rather than by the rules that we can follow by how faithfully we can do the right things and avoid the wrong things. It's Jesus Christ that makes us right with God. So obeying the law in its most generic sense means being good, right? Whatever good is. You, you get to define good, but your sense of good, whatever that is, when you are obeying that sense of goodness, you are obeying a law, the law. Following the rules, specific religious rules. And what are some of those? Some of them are universal, like murdering. Don't, don't murder people, right? That, that's not a bad rule, right? Don't steal. That's another good rule. Honoring your parents. Uh, not committing adultery. Those are good rules. But also, and especially for this varsity team that was in Antioch with Peter, don't un eat unclean foods. Don't eat with unclean people. And... For goodness sake, get circumcised, and you'll be on the inside with the varsity team. And Paul says, if that's what you're up to, then what you're following is the law, and the law leads to death. Following religious rules leads to death and condemnation, and de death is separation from God. Paul says, my new life, that is the life that pleases God, is based at the start and at the end, and everywhere in between, it's based on trusting Jesus. It's based on faith. There's no place in Paul's life where his new life, the life that is Christ in him, there's no room for rules following moral rules. To use religious rule-keeping to try to please God is to treat the grace of God as meaningless. So he continues. We looked at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Let's drop in now with chapter 3, uh, verse 3, rather, of chapter 3. How foolish can you be? After starting your Christian lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? And he answers emphatically the rhetorical question which he hopes his audience will, will already have answered, of course not. So how did the Holy Spirit first come to be among these believers? It was because they believed the message of the gospel, the message that Jesus Christ died for sinners, and that believing that message rescues a person from the condemnation of hell that the moral guilt that we have, that we owe God, is paid for by Jesus Christ, and that that message, believing that message, changes a person's eternal destiny from separation in hell 
to heaven and life. That's the message of the gospel that he brought, Paul brought, to those Galatian churches. And he said, so if you started with faith, and that's how you got the Holy Spirit, is because of that faith, how is it again that you're going to hold on to that Holy Spirit by following all these moral laws and these rules? How does, how does that work, Paul says? Because it doesn't work that way. If that's the way you're thinking, then it's foolishness to think that you can start by faith and then perfect your faith by rule-keeping. That's not what leads to sanctification. Sanctification is a churchy word that means becoming more and more like Christ and less and less like my old self, like that version of me that's a rebel to God. That's my old self, the rebel. The new self is led by and enlivened by Jesus Christ. That's my new self. Sanctification is the progressive, hopefully growing, organic version of Jesus continuing to show himself faithful in my life, and my life starts to head more and more in the direction of Jesus. That's sanctification. And Paul says, sanctification doesn't happen by keeping rules, moral rules. What you do and don't do does not help you become more like Jesus. That does not make sense to varsity team people. Following rules is what makes you more like Jesus. That's what a moral, religious, rule-keeper person says. It's deep within them. I grew up uh, going to a independent, conservative, Baptist grade school, and there I learned that denim is not holy, and polyester is. <laughs> I learned that if girls want to glorify God, they wear culottes while they're swimming. I learned that it was sinful for me to want to wear flight pants to school. Michael Jackson wore those, and that was bad. <laughs> I learned to love corduroys, corduroy pants. That was okay. I went to Moody Bible Institute. Uh, I love Moody. My son is going to be going to Moody here in a couple weeks. And at Moody, when I went there, they had all kinds of rules that you should and shouldn't, things you should and things you shouldn't do. Uh, like, um, I, while I was a student there, I, I couldn't go to movies. Uh, while I was a student there, I couldn't smoke, I couldn't drink, uh, I couldn't play with traditional face cards. Um, that means that if the cards that I was playing a game with had, like, traditional king or queen or jack or ace, I couldn't play with those cards. Um, I could, however, play card games like Rook or Dutch Blitz. So apparently the jack is bad, but the little crow is okay, right? <laughs> Just right, you, you figure out where what's good and what's bad. And, uh, I couldn't have, uh, I couldn't dance. Uh, when I got married, I was still a student at Moody, could not have dancing at my wedding. Certainly could not serve any alcohol at my wedding. Um, lots and lots of rules, right? Um, where did all those rules come from? <laughs> they were just invented out of nowhere. Um, some of you know all about those rules, right? You grew up in a culture, subculture, where those rules were the, the measuring stick between those who loved God and those who didn't, those who were trying to obey God and those who weren't that it was, it was those kinds of things you could look for as evidence of somebody's devotion to God, right? You didn't smoke, and you didn't chew, and what else didn't you do? 
right? You didn't go with girls who do, right? So there's all these sort of places we can put people, and then we know where the good people fit because of all of these other rules. Now, the difference between what was happening in the Galatian churches with this varsity team and, for instance, Moody, is that Moody was not suggesting that by following all these rules, you were becoming a better version of a Christian. It might have been implied, but it was not stated. In fact, the dean of students said, this is not about spiritual, this isn't a spiritual litmus test, this is just about community living standards. So, great, that's fine. For the varsity team in Galatia, this was about a different type of Christian experience, that you could be a better Christian if you followed all of these different kinds of rules. And that's why Paul goes after this again and again and again. And he asks these rhetorical questions at the start of chapter 3, again, like in verse 5. I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? So because you're doing a better job of saying no to the bad and yes to the good, is that what is inviting God to work among you? And Paul says, of course not. That's not why God is working among you because you're saying no to bad things and yes to good things. He's working among you. Why? Because you have faith in Jesus. And when you have faith in Jesus, then God is working among you. Unfortunately for the the varsity team, uh, they understand the faith in Jesus part, but that only applies to like the moment when you become a follower of Jesus, right? That that the door that unlocks, the the key that unlocks the door to a relationship with Jesus, it starts with faith, but then it's perfected by rule-keeping, right? I get into the kingdom of God by the grace of God, by faith alone, but then once I'm in the kingdom of God, I have to work really, really hard to stay in the kingdom of God and become a better Christian by all the rules that that I follow. Paul says that's not why God was working among you. Now, just a note about how God works through the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and I don't have tons of time to develop this. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit operated differently than he does in the New Testament. God changed how he worked through the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That's what signaled a change or a shift in how God worked through the Holy Spirit. So the day of Pentecost, for any of you who are students of Scripture, that's the day, 50 days after uh, Passover— that the Jews would celebrate. So Jesus was crucified during the Passover celebration. And then 50 days later, you've still got all these Jews from all over the empire who are still kind of having a party (laughs) two months later in Jerusalem, day of Pentecost. And if you look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, we learn about something special that happened on that Pentecost day. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place, says uh, Acts 2, verse 1. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running. And they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet 
we hear them speaking in our own native languages. So right there at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given to believers. And one of the things that happens is the miracle of being able to speak in a language you have not studied, nor do you know, and yet it is understandable to a different people group who do speak that language. Uh, That's what the Bible describes as tongues. Sometimes you hear that word tongues, speaking in tongues. What the Bible is referring to is a known human language that is spoken, but it is not known to the speaker. But it is known to the others who speak that language, that language group. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came. He empowered believers. They were demonstrating that this is supernatural, what's happening. There's no question. And for the Jewish people, that was evidence that God was at work. Speaking in tongues was a sign to the Jewish people who, did not yet, who were not yet followers of Jesus that God is at work. This is from God. That's different than how the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. So uh, King David, second king of the Jewish nation, the first king was Saul. And Saul, part of what happened in the Old Testament is when a prophet showed up, for instance, at your home because you were going to be the next king of Israel or queen, whatever, uh, he would bring with him some oil and he would anoint your head with oil, And what that symbolized was that the prophet had the authority to give you the Holy Spirit, that they were empowered by God to give the Holy Spirit. So the, the oil represents the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. And Saul got that. But if you know the story of Saul, the Spirit was taken away from Saul. And Saul didn't get the Spirit of God back. Who was given the Spirit of God next? It was given to David, wasn't it? He was anointed. The Holy Spirit was given to David. Well, then what did David do? He had a moral failure just like Saul, Uh, maybe even worse. Uh, Saul Saul had lots of different moral failures. David, uh, there was this woman named Bathsheba. He was not married to her. Uh, He seduced her. Uh, They had an affair. And then uh, David murdered her husband so that he could have her as part of his uh, harem. So David was confronted by the prophet Nathan, if you know the story, right? And uh, Nathan said, what you're doing is really bad, and actually you deserve the death penalty. Not just the death penalty. I mean, God has the right to take away the kingdom from you, uh, but he's not going to do that. Well, David, in reflecting on his moral guilt and the choice-making that he had demonstrated. He pens Psalm 51. And if you look at verses 10 and 11, what he says there is he's praying to God. He's begging God, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Because David understood how God used the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would be given and then the Holy Spirit would be taken away. What changed at the day of Pentecost Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is now given as a guarantee of our salvation to believers in the New Testament era, in the post-Pentecost era. 2 Corinthians 5.5, God himself, Paul says, has prepared us for this, and as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. He says it again in Ephesians 1.14, the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. So when Paul is talking to the Galatian churches, he's saying, 
don't you remember what, what you did to get the Holy Spirit? And that was nothing. You simply believed. You couldn't be good enough. Rule-keeping was not part of why you got the Holy Spirit. And now, post-Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is given to believers, and he stays with believers, unlike the Old Testament, where the Holy Spirit was given and then taken away. That's a change. Then Paul confronts the varsity team's requirement for membership. This varsity team wanted to convince everybody in these churches they had to become true children of Abraham, and specifically because this is such a patriarchal culture and male-oriented society that fell on the men to become circumcised, that that was the mark of Abraham. And if you wanted to be a true Jew, if you wanted to be a true child of Abraham, you had to at least be like Abraham and become circumcised. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9 Paul says, in this same way, Abraham believed God and counted him as righteous because of his faith. And this is contrasting in the minds of his listeners because they would have already heard lots and lots that Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his circumcision, because he followed God's rules. That's what made Abraham righteous. And Paul says that's not at all what made Abraham righteous. It was his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, says Paul, are those who put their faith in God. So he takes the membership requirement of the varsity team and he turns it, he turns it upside down or inside out. What's more, Paul goes on, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would declare the Gentiles to be righteous because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith, not because of his rule-keeping. Paul says that if you have faith like Abraham, you are a true Jew, the truest child of Abraham, if you have faith. He continues in verse 10. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. So the varsity team, Paul says, they're living under God's curse, ironically, as saved people who believe in Jesus. Those guys are living under the curse of God. Why? Because they are committed to following rules. That's their scheme, their frame, their lens for learning about how to follow God. It's through rule-keeping, moral rule-keeping. Paul says, if you do that, you're living under the curse of God. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it's clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. So we talked last week about the cursed gospel. We talked the week before that about the cursed gospel here it is. The cursed gospel is any version of spirituality that requires you to follow rules in order to be okay with God. If there's rules in any part of your spirituality, you are living under the curse of God, unless you can do it perfectly. Unless whatever moral code you're living by, you can do that perfectly, then you're okay. But if you can't, then you're living under the curse of God. And that is doubly tragic for a person who has Christ living inside of them, inviting them to life, and yet choosing to live an old life based on rules, moral rules. 
The only condition to being saved from God's curse is faith in Jesus, not by being good enough, not by what you don't do or what you do. That is not the condition which makes you pleasing to God. The curse of God is separation, by the way, in this life and in the life to come. How do we please God? Paul says it again and again. He also, well, we don't know who says it, but in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 11, verse 6, the writer of Hebrews says, and it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. So faith is start end and everywhere in between, that is the road to growing as a Christian, living in faith. And you are not living in faith when you are following religious rules in the hopes or aspirations that that somehow means that you are following more closely to Jesus. Rules do not make you a more close follower of Jesus. All it does is expose you to condemnation and judgment. That's what rules are supposed to do. That's why Jesus came as a fulfillment of the law, that he fulfilled all the requirements of the law so that you don't have to. Paul continues in verse 12 of chapter 3. This way of faith is very different from the way of law, which says it's through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law when he was hung on the cross. He took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. That's how he could be the fulfillment of the law. For it is written in the scriptures, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, verse 14, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit. How? Through faith, not through avoiding bad and doing good. So Gentiles become true, true Jews, the truest form of Jews because of their faith in Jesus. Well, Paul continues through the rest of chapter 3, emphasizing that anyone who tries to make religious rules be the, the litmus test or the growing part of the Christian's life is going to continue to live under God's curse. The law expired when Christ came. The way of faith is contrasted continually by the way of law, and Paul goes to great pains to emphasize that you will never please God by saying no to certain things and yes to other things. That will never please God. What will please God is faith. Paul, at the end of chapter 3, starts to talk about the function of the law. What's the point of the law? And what he says is that the law, religious rules, are designed to keep people safe until the right time. So he says, like children, and we understand when you have a little one who can't mind themselves, you put up baby gates, right? You childproof your home. You put them in a playpen, right? Because if you just left them to themselves, they would get into trouble. So we, we understand that. But when our child is 15 or, or 18, they need to leave the playpen, right? If they're still in the playpen, then that signals that there's a problem, probably with the parenting, but also maybe with the child at this point if, if they've submitted to that kind, kind of parenting, right? So that's, that's a problem. We get that. 
as they arrive at the right age, when it, the time is right, we take away the boundaries and we allow them to live a life as an adult person. And Paul says that that time, the time, the time was right when Christ came. Christ fulfilled all the obligations of the law, and so he obliterated the need to keep people from yes and no kinds of experiences. I, you know, I have to do this, or I can't do that. And if you know anything about the human heart, you know that what we love is finding a line, because then what we can do is we can, we can bend the line, right? I can still sort of stay inside the line, and yet I've, I've changed where I am. And I kind of know that I'm bending it, but I still can say to myself that I'm not because I, I feel like I'm on this side of it still, right? We, we know how to do that as people. Um, to me, in some ways, I, I get maybe why we wanted to live differently in that little Christian school that I went to, but it seems to me that choosing to create a whole fabric group as more holy seems like I'm staying on this side of the line, but really, I mean, I should be wearing linen, shouldn't I, if I want to stay close to what Christ was doing? Well, anyway, so we have these rules. Interesting, by the way, Jesus would not fit Moody's dress code. His beard was too long and unkept, and his hair was too long, if the pictures tell the truth. <clears throat> but some of you who, like I, was mentored and raised by varsity team members, you might say in your heart, or you might hear these voices of these varsity team members saying, but if you love Jesus, didn't Jesus say, if you love me, you'll obey my, do you know what he said? You love me, you'll obey my commands, right? And so when a, when a varsity team member hears Jesus say that, it all clicks into place. Yes, that's right. If we love Jesus, we're going to obey all of the rules. That's what he meant. Well, let's see, among other things, what Jesus meant in Luke 6, verses 1 through 7. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples broke off heads of grain, rubbed off the husks in their hands, and then they ate the grain. But some Pharisees, varsity team, said, Why are you breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? And Jesus replied, Haven't you read the scriptures? What David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God. He broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests can eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And Jesus added, The Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. And on another Sabbath day, a man with a deformed right hand was in the synagogue while Jesus was teaching. The teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. So for the varsity team, what happened is that the rules became the God, right? They weren't following God anymore, and that's part of the reason why they killed Jesus is because he was telling them, your rules need to be broken because God is outside of your rules and God is inviting you to follow him outside of your rules. But you're saying no to God and yes to your rules. And that's part of the reason why Paul is saying you can't actually please God because this kind of living doesn't require faith. We'll create all these boundaries and then I don't need to think. I just need to obey. I don't need to be discerning. I don't need to use faith. I just need to stay inside of the boundaries. But 
like this example in Luke 6, there are many times when Christ is encouraging us to follow him by stepping outside of, of our rules. Now, Christ will never lead us in any direction that violates his will. He is holy. That's why he's trustworthy. So, as long as I'm in step with Jesus, rules don't have any place in my life. And that's what Paul says. You're, you're free, actually. You've been set free. Paul says to the Galatians, we started out by no rules, and then you had this varsity team group show up and put all kinds of rules all over your life. And he says, what we need to get back to is living by faith, not by all of these rules, not by proving that you're good enough. Yes, if we love Jesus, we'll obey his commands. One of Jesus' commands <laughs> is to step outside of your rules. Further down in Luke 6, what does Jesus say about stepping outside of your rules? Verse 36, you must be, what's the word? Compassionate. Think of Micah 6.8. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. I mean, if anyone had a right to insist that people live in the rules, wouldn't it be God? I mean, he's not a hypocrite when he requires other people to live by the rules. But he's a compassionate God. And Jesus said, if you want to love me and obey my commands, be like my father. Be compassionate. And then he goes on in verse 37, don't judge others and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others or it will all come back against you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you, pressed down, shaken together, to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will, be, will determine the amount you get back. And then he continues in verses 43 and following. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes. Grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. The varsity team wants you to read those verses through their lens. What that means is that if you're good, you're going to follow our rules. And that proves that you are a good, good tree bearing good fruit. How do we know that? Because of how good a job you do staying inside of these rules that we create. Do not taste, do not touch, do not do those things. Make sure that you do these special things. That somehow we're meant to understand that what Jesus was teaching here was the value and the virtue of living according to rules. I would hope that from the little bit that we've read out of Luke 6 that you can see that's absolutely counterfeit. Jesus is, is fighting the varsity team here. He's fighting their insistence that he live inside of their rules. How can we take what Paul is saying in Galatians 3 into our lives today? If any of us consider us ourselves followers of God, if any of us here today consider us believers in Jesus, the impulse of the human heart and any varsity team members you've ever encountered in your life will encourage you to live inside of rules and boundaries. They'll say that that's the best for you and that true Christians are excellent 
at not just living within the boundaries, but actually taking steps away from the edge of the boundaries, right? I'll even get a narrower scope of my Christian life that I'll live, sort of all locked up. You've encountered that if you've been a believer for any length of time. What Christ wants us to do is follow him with with faith, not with sight. So when I have a rule, I, I know where to go. When I take the rule down, now I'm not sure <laughs> where the edge is, right? What does that require? It requires trusting something other than my rules in order to make decisions. I have to follow Jesus. The invitation is, when you start taking away rules, you still need to know how to make choices. But what makes your choices for you? Your, your rules? Or the growing dependence that you have on following Jesus for the choices that you have to make in your day-to-day life. So stop living inside of fences under the mistaken impression that that somehow pleases God. What pleases God is faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Rules will not help you grow to become more Christ-like. What helps you become more Christ-like? Well, like our friend Peter, when you step out of the boat when you leave rules behind and you start doing something you maybe don't know how to do very well. Maybe you know how to keep rules really well. Maybe you're great at that. Paul said he was great at that too. That's the part of him that had to die. (laughs) And the part that had to live was the part that needed to learn how to live outside of the rules. And all the varsity team members here and in Paul's audience would say, see, I knew it, Paul. You're all about breaking rules. You want people to live in crazy ways. Because if people aren't living with boundaries in their life, they're going to live like crazy people. That's why we have these rules, Paul. And you're just trying to let people get away with sin. So Paul talks about that issue. And we'll get to it, but not today. My encouragement is, how can you live more fully by faith and not by rules?